Hello and welcome to the Wholehearted Healer Podcast. My name is Dr. Avine Banish and I will be your host. This is the weekly podcast that helps women pause in their busy lives, drop into the heart, and remember their next right step. I am so happy that you're here. Hi there and welcome to another episode of the podcast. My name is Dr. Avine Banish. I'm your host. And this week I'm excited to bring you an interview I did with Mike Cohen. Mike is someone who I met a few years ago when I was a student in his Kirtan intensives in Boulder before COVID. Um, And I found Mike to be warm and funny, a fantastic teacher, a fantastic musician, and someone who really was open-hearted in his teaching and his presence and made trying something new like Kirtan really accessible. And so a little bit more about Mike. He is a leadership coach and a founder of the Kirtan Leader Institute. His career encompasses two strands, leadership development and spiritual and psychological growth through music. A lifelong musician, Mike has been a practitioner and a teacher of Kirtan for over two decades. Since 2010, he has trained and apprenticed thousands of Kirtan students. From total beginners through advanced leaders, he has guided to tour, play festivals, and create and release their own Kirtan albums. Mike's Kirtan training is informed by his training as an integral somatic and Enneagram coach, along with decades of study in numerous philosophical, psychological, and spiritual lineages. Mike himself has released four critically acclaimed full-length Kirtan albums. He lives in the foothills of Boulder, Colorado with his partner, Martha Hartney. And in the show notes, I will link his, his websites, ways you can get in touch with him, ask questions, or maybe just dive in to his Kirtan Leader Institute. Um, I highly recommend it, and a lot of his uh, programming is now online, so distance is no problem. Uh, but without further ado, here is my interview with Mike Cohen. Okay, so hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Wholehearted Healer podcast. My name is Dr. Avian Banish. I'm your host, and I'm excited this week to have Mike Cohen on as a guest. Mike. Um, I met Mike a number of years ago when I attended one of his Kirtan um, intensive workshops in Boulder, and uh, I just loved his style. He, He made it so easy. I had never done that before. And so Mike is the founder of the Kirtan Leader Institute. He's also been a leadership and development coach for two decades. He Um, has done a lot of work in the Kirtan arena. He has four full-length albums. He's also trained dozens of students, a number of whom have gone on to record their own Kirtan albums. And so, Mike, welcome. Thanks for being here today. Hi, welcome. It's great to be here. Just one quick clarification on that. I've probably trained thousands of students, but uh, I have have several dozen who've gone on to make recordings (laughs) and albums. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I loved my time in in your classes. Can I just, I guess to begin, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and how you found your way to Kirtan? 
Yeah. So one of the ways I've been thinking about my life and, you know, it's always up for reinterpretation is that I, I zig and I zag. And so um, I, I grew up in, in Connecticut and I happened to go to a high school that had one of the top uh, jazz programs in the country. And it was amazing. I mean, there's two high schools in my town. I could have been on the other side of town, but I went, I went here. It's called Hall High School and it's put out, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of professional musicians, including uh, a guy named Brad Meldow, who is a few years younger than me. And many people see him as like the world's greatest piano player, you know, improvisational wow. piano player. So I had these incredible experiences. We, we went to, uh, we, every, every two years we'd go to Europe. So when I was 17, I did a three week European tour, uh, with a band and we uh, made albums, uh, my junior and senior year. I should say that, you know, we had 350 kids per class. So about 1400 kids in the school and we had three full jazz bands. And so Amazing. what a rich environment. Holy cow. Yeah. And we would go to festivals and win. And so my, and I had these amazing experiences. My, my senior in high school, I was kind of the star of the band and won the top uh, scholarship award at the Berkeley school of music where we won the festivals. It's just like amazing experiences. So I, you know, but I was kind of, you know, oriented more towards academics. So I, I went to a school that had music, and academics. So I, I studied, I got a political science degree at University of Rochester, and then they had a uh, music school attached called the Eastman School of Music, which is a, a top school. And I had similar kinds of experiences there, was in their top bands and traveled and toured and festivals and all this. And meanwhile, I made all these connections. So I, you know, got all these, uh, you know, um, you know, gigs while I was in, in college. So when I was 19, I played in a band at Disney for a summer. And when I was 20, I started working on cruise ships. And uh, when I got out of college, I uh, ended up going on the road for four years with a, an African-American singer named Jane Powell. And she had just won the NACA College Circuit Entertainer of the Year, four years of that. And then, and then I said, I am done with being a musician in this life. And so I zagged and I went back to okay. Connecticut and ended up in uh, working uh, through a crazy synchronicity as the political campaign manager of a guy who was running for state representative. We're, we're old family friends and high school friends. It was a six way Democratic primary in 1994, which was wow. the Republican uh, contract with America year, big Republican wave. And we won the primary and we won the general. So I worked in politics for a little bit and I kind of saw, I don't think that what is important to me is going to happen through this avenue. Like, as I, I saw the sausage making, right? And that led me into an inquiry about like, what, what's going on here? How does change happen? What, what are people? And that um, really pushed me into uh, what ended up being my master's degree, which I was looking at leadership and adult development and uh, a practical application of being a coach. So I got training as an integral coach, a somatic coach, an Enneagram coach. So I was working with the body, working with all parts of the human, working with personality. And I was really, uh, you know, you know, I had fully zagged. And so I was really in that space for a long time until uh, until what happened was, is I had um, I had done a lot of Qigong and I'd done obviously a lot of music. And I went to my first yoga class and the teacher, uh, this is in April of 2000, the teacher chanted. And at first I thought it was really weird. And mm -hmm. then I fell in love with it. And I was like, oh, right. This is energy work plus music combined. And it's fun and it's easy. It's like. And the states I got in were just incredible, and it was so heart-opening. So uh, I just kind of played in her band with her her husband for about five years, and then I moved, and then 
things unfolded. And then uh, I was on a spiritual retreat and some folks asked if I might lead Kirtan and I'd never really done it before, but I gave it a try and people loved it. And I thought, oh, I should try this. So this is around 2006 and I was living in Columbus, Ohio, and it just started taking over my life. And so um, I launched a monthly Kirtan, which I should say sacred chanting from the yoga tradition. And what happens is that's very interesting. The audience sings as well as the, as the band. And so uh, I launched this Kirtan scene and we went from 20 people to 120 people at our monthly events. And by this time I'd started writing music and made my first album and went on the road and all this sort of stuff. And um, this is all through the financial crisis. So I was working as a uh, purely virtually in 2009, which I think was somewhat unique. And I was doing uh, some coaching for a, a company. And, but the awesome thing about it is I could be anywhere. So I just went on the road. I had my first CD and I traveled and all this sort of stuff. And then, and then I, and then I, uh, and then I zagged again, or I don't know if it was a zig at this point, but I, <laughs> I decided to, to, after three years to get off the road again, you know, and I launched a program that brought together all of the coaching strands that I felt were important. And it was a nine month training and, uh, and, and did that. And then, uh, I zigged again, I moved to, to Boulder and where, where we met. And, uh, I thought, well, this could be a really fun place to take this Kirtan Leader Institute and really, uh, you know, see if I can make it 100% of my work, um, which I did and really built things up and is really like cooking along. And then COVID came and yep. so that was it. <laughs> that was it. So I spent the last two years putting it all online and I'm doing a little bit of uh, zigging or zagging. I've lost track of where I was to um, back into the coaching world. And I'm, I'm doing courses with a Fortune 50 uh, coach and author, a good friend of mine around embodied conversations, bringing together speech acts, uh, which is a form of linguistics and somatics, which looks at the head, heart and body, kind of puts the body center. And uh, and here I am. I don't know. It's just very interesting. That's a pretty, for a lot of zigs and zags, you really, you it's succinctly told how you have such a varied and exciting background, really. I guess I would just want to you know, for those I've experienced Kirtan and I've experienced Kirtan with you. And I agree that for me, I've always loved to sing, but for me, that experience is really heart opening. And I don't know if it's, I'm sure it's such a combination of things. I mean, it's, it's singing sacred words. It's the breath patterns. It's also just the community aspect that, like you said, you're singing with people, um, but it's pr- it's just a magical experience. Uh, could you speak a little bit more about that and your experience with it? Yeah, I would I would agree with you. It's magical. Um, <laughs> it's happiness inducing and gratitude mm-hmm. inducing, and um, there's so many dimensions of it. I mean, it is super powerful to sing with a whole bunch of other people. I mean, humans love doing that. That's tribal. There's something about the words which are in Sanskrit that we chant, and I like to say that. Um, uh, here's at least three ways of thinking about language. And one is that language is representational. So we point to something and it's like, that's a pen and that's a book and that's a water bottle. And we see a thing and we, and the orientation is we just put a word on it. But then the, the work that I'm doing with my, my friend, whose name is Amiel Handelsman, this uh, fellow coach is you, working with language is generative. So in the fifties, some philosophers started realizing that, um, Language, language wasn't always representational and it actually was generative or action oriented. So it's working with things like requests and offers and promises 
and declarations and assertions and assessments in a really embodied way where we're bringing things into uh, into the world through language. So when you reached out to me and said, hey, would you like to do this uh, podcast? And I said, and that was an offer. And I said, sure, I accepted. Now we had a promise. We couldn't have actually pointed to, the, to that anywhere in the world until that happened in language. So those are two ways. And I would say that's language heading into the world. Now there's something going on with the Sanskrit language and with the Kirtan stuff that is very mysterious, but a way that I might try and describe it other than magic, right? Is that it's a language that instead of going into the world, it goes through our heart to the heart of the divine. And it, it's a language that goes, goes inward and accesses something and something beautiful happens. And I like to think that even when we chant just a tiny little bit, a way of describing it is that, um, you know, ordinarily we're uh, cut off from our body and our hearts are shut down and our heads are going crazy. Mm -hmm. I like to say it's like a snow globe, you know, and then <laughs> we chant just a little bit. Like I see this all the time, just a couple minutes. And it's like all that little glittery stuff in the snow globe, you know, settles to the bottom. My head becomes open and spacious and my heart opens and become and extends into the world. And I found myself landed in more deeply in my body. And, and that's like, I think that's a, a very high functioning place for humans. And from there, what tends to emerge is a sense of, gratitude, like, wow, look how beautiful everything is. And this is so amazing. And this, the music is incredible. And look at all these people and, you know, and, and, and I don't know why it does that. We are chanting these syllables that are, um, you know, mantras, these words that are thousands of years old. And I think there's something about the way that it leans heavily on vowels, which I think get into work our central channel. Which, mm -hmm. which, you know, there's a lot of technical stuff we could get in all this. But the truth of the matter is, it's a giant mystery. It's magic. It works. It's consistent. It's reliable. It's dutiful. And it's fun. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, you've mentioned this and you've mentioned embodiment a number of times. But I think part of its magic is that it's, it's working in the body in a way that you know, so much of our lives right now are not, you know, we're on screens or we're in our head, or we're not occupying that space. And it's this amazing combination of those sounds and the, the group and the vibration in the body that it's, um, it feels ancient, but it also feels kind of new at, at this point, at this juncture in the world, because it's like this lost art that we're not doing as much as was probably done in, in, you know, generations prior. Yeah, well, certainly in India in the 1500s, there was this uh, tremendous bhakti movement that took place. And what, what had happened was, is like, it was a little bit like uh, the Occupy Wall Street um, notion of the 1% and the 99%. But mm -hmm. in India, which is so spiritually focused, you know, we're so materially focused here. But in right. India, they, they, the 1% had the mantras and the 99% didn't. And some folks said, this isn't okay. And so they took the mantras and they gave them to the regular people. And they said, look, just take this and mash it up with your music, however, however you do it, and chant this. And um, it became this giant, huge uh, flowering of, of, of bhakti in the 1500s, the greatest bhakti movement ever. And I think the same thing is happening here in the West. These mantras washed ashore in the 60s with, you know, the Beatles and all sorts of other spiritual mm -hmm. organizations. And we're Western Kirtan artists have been trying to figure out what do we do with these? Like we take these mantras and we mash them up with our music. And 
And in a sense, it's a folk art. Like you can distinguish between a folk art and a fine art like classical music and a pop art. And a folk art sort of tends to have, um, you know, very deep cultural roots or spiritual roots and not the highest requirement of musical technique, which makes it both, both powerful and accessible to people. So it is, I think it's both, it is both ancient and modern. I've actually described it that way. And I recently gave a talk on six ways of being in relationship with the practice of kirtan. And I won't get all that deeply in there, but I, but I will say that, you know, there are more traditional ways and there are more uh, pop music or oriented ways and a way that I think we're talking about here that's really relevant, I could call somatic or phenomenological or human. And somatic means um, you're, you're learning from the body up rather than the head down. Mm -hmm. You're learning from the inside out rather than from the outside in and you're grounding your knowing in your lived experience. So a lot of what I do with uh, as a, like a standard practice with uh, the Kirtan students is I have them chant and I, I have them do a head, heart and body scan before we chant and then we chant and then I say to them, what are you noticing now in your head, heart and body? And so as a practice, we're like building the muscle of what is called building somatic awareness, bringing like the video camera of our awareness, aiming it into those three centers and seeing like um, what's there and then what gets produced from the chanting. And it's pretty, pretty amazing, <laughs> pretty amazing to see that happen because it's, it's very powerful. It's very palpable, the change. Yeah. I mean, it's such a tool in that way, right? It can really transform how we feel. And I, I love you make, that was really interesting about, you know, folk art versus fine art, because um, it's not performative. It's really, you know, cause a lot of people say, well, I can't sing. Like, you don't want to hear me sing. Like we've heard, you've probably heard that thousands of times, yeah. um, but it's really not about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, um, you know, first of all, the, the, the instrument that traditionally we play, which ironically is a European instrument that went to India and they fell in love with it. It's called the harmonium and people look at it and they think, Oh, it's like a, a keyboard or something, but actually it's a little different. So if you, if you imagine you go to a concert hall and you see a giant grand piano and then at home you would have the upright piano. Mm -hmm. Well, if you went to a church, you know, you would see medieval church, let's say you'd see this giant pipe organ. And then the harmonium was the, the home version and the French built it. The Indian, the, the, the English brought it to India. The Indians took a look at it and had these foot pedals and they kicked that off because they don't sit in chairs and they put it on the floor and they're like, we only need one hand. And so they put a bellows you could pump on the left. And it's like a, a giant church organ, just like coming back at you, which is very human sounding. And so it's almost like you're singing with a choir when you're playing that instrument and it kind of covers up your imperfections. But I've, I've, I've had so many folks who are like, I, I can't sing. I never sang. Someone told me I can't sing, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, I kind of differentiate between singing and chanting and anyone can chant, you know, singing might require some professional training, but chanting is really our birthright. I love that. Yeah. And, and for me, it's so heart-based, you know, if I, um, if I sit down with my harmonium, it's a different experience when I just do the practice by myself, as I'm sure it is for you. Um, but it's still wonderful. Um, but it really does. It's one of those tools, one of the fastest tools that I know to transform how I'm physically feeling, how the body feels, how open my heart feels. Um, and in that way, it's, it's really valuable, especially now 
in the world. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, there's lots of times when I get on classes where I'm teaching or, you know, previously Kirtan events and it's like, wow, I've had a really hard day. It's been stressful. Um, you know, I'm dealing with a thousand things, you know, and, uh, especially here with COVID it's, it sort of seems like we're in this thing that folks have called the meta crisis, which is like a whole series of crises, mm -hmm. crises. And I've also seen like this sort of, uh, an image where it was like, it was like a relay race and COVID was like passing it off to Ukraine, you know, and it's like one thing after another, grabbing our attention, pulling us in, stressing us out, you know, and, uh, it's life is harder than the meta crisis. And I think that causes us, us to disconnect from our body, shut down our hearts and our minds are going crazy. And I, I think that that's from that place, we tend to be reactive. And what we really want to do is recenter and Kirtan to me recenters us in such an amazing way. And then we're more able, able to respond. And another way of looking at this is mood. If I'm in a, like a mood is a predis, predisposition to action. And it's um, like uh, the climate is to uh, the day, the, the weather of the day. So I might have an emotion. Oh, I'm, I'm angry. And that's like, oh, it's raining. But we're here in Colorado and it's dry and it's, you know, it's not a rainy climate like the Pacific Northwest. So mood kind of lives in the background. And a lot of us live in, you know, moods that our cultures, our culture or our trauma or our history kind of have us in that could be really, you know, somewhat debilitating in terms of the action that they predispose us towards. So we could be in a mood of resignation. Nothing good can happen here or a mood of resentment. You've done something horrible to me and you can never make up for it or the opposite, a mood of guilt. I've done something terrible and I can never make up for mm -hmm. it. But, but one of the most powerful moods is gratitude, which is like, I'm, I'm grateful and I'm in joy and, and I, uh, am just in awe of everything that's here and the beauty and the goodness, you know, and Kirtan just puts us right in gratitude. It's so amazing. So quickly. Yeah. And that sometimes action precedes mood. So sometimes we, you know, we can't think our way out of those states. We actually need something. And I think the most useful tools are those tools of embodiment where we actually settle back into the body and um, yeah, that's what I really have found singing in general, but Kirtan kind of supercharged that for me. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, um, yeah, that's for me too. I, I'll tell you two, two things real quick. One is that, um, that this buddy of mine that I teach these courses with Amiel, who I met, who I mentioned, we, we did a trip at the end of 2003 down to, uh, down to um, South beach in Miami. And it was, mm -hmm. it was really fun. Uh, I drove and he met me halfway and we drove the rest of the way. And then a woman who had just started dating, who's now his wife and the mother of his two, two kids uh, came down to, to spend time with us. And his brother came, we had this great time. So it was new year's Eve and we're all going to go out. And he said to me, what do you want to do? You know, what are you thinking to do? And now this is the end of 2003. So there's no Facebook. There's no, the what internet was pretty primitive. And I said, you know, I found this um, group that's going to be chanting. And I want to go over and check it out, you know? So anyhow, I went over and checked it out and I, and I told them, I said, Hey, like I'm a musician and I do kirtan. They said, Oh, great. We're going to put you in the choir, right? And so <laughs> there's about 150 people and we chanted to Om Namah Shivaya, basically to Shiva for like three hours. And I came back and I found my friend in South Beach and he, he looked at me and he's like, you're glowing. 
and I've never seen you this happy ever. And it was like, it just did this whole thing. Now, now Krishna Das, who's kind of the, the Elvis of the Kirtan world, he's the, uh, <laughs> kind of like the, the pivotal figure and most popular artist. If you've heard of anyone, you've heard of him. He has this uh, phrase that he says, gradually, but inevitably. And he says, um, gradually, but inevitably, if you chant, your heart will open. Mm. And Mike, what do you say to someone who might be listening who, I don't know, chanting, you know, maybe their religious beliefs, or it just seems a little foreign to them? Are there tools, you know, do you think singing, like we talked about singing in general can be helpful? Or how do you approach someone who is like, this sounds great, but it's a little outside of my comfort zone? Yeah, well, there's kind of um, kind of two ways, I would say. So sometimes folks who have uh, resistance to, to sacred chant, um, it's because they're scientific. And they say, uh, wait a minute, I'm secular, I'm scientific, I don't believe in these myths. Uh, Noah parted the Red Sea, okay, show me some proof, right? right? And they're like, seems like there's a lot of woo-woo stuff going on in here. And to them, I say, run the experiment. I say, let's do this. If you're willing to do it, let's just have you chant Om. We're going to do it for five minutes and, and take an inventory of your phenomenolo- phenomenolo- phenomenology. So <laughs> uh, phenomenology is a way of um, being scientific about what's happening in your inner experience. Now, science, um, when it, I think, devolves into scientism, the argument goes from uh, philosopher Ken Wilber or others, it only um, is willing to measure that which is out in the external world. But phenomenology is a branch of uh, philosophy, psychology, that looks at what's the inner experience going on. So I would say, look, let's run the experiment. Here's what we're going to do. Check in with yourself, head, heart, and body. We're going to chant OM for five minutes. We're going to stop, check in with yourself again. Tell me what happened. Like, if nothing happened, okay. But if something happened, like, you know, be scientific. What are the data? What are the results? What, what, what really happened for you? And can you be curious about that? So, so that's one. Now, other folks, you know, it's like, this is runs very counter to their religious beliefs. Maybe they say I'm a fundamentalist Christian, and this seems really off base for me. And to those folks, you know, and I've showed up, you know, at times in the Midwest to a yoga class with my harmonium unannounced. And I look out at the room and people are looking at me in terror Right. Mm-hmm. And so what I say to them is, hey, OK, we're going to do this. It's going to be really simple. And what I'm going to tell you is that people used to love singing together in church and yes. people don't go to church very much. So this is like that. And we're going to chant Om. You might notice the word Om is an awful lot like Amen. So you can chant along with us or if you don't want to do that, you can just you can just sit in the experience and, and notice what happens. And let's do this pre post you know, evaluation. And, uh, you know, so with folks like that, sometimes, you know, they might not even chant, but I ask how are they doing? And some of them say like, well, I don't know, I guess I feel a little bit more relaxed. You know? Yeah, that's beautiful that there's, there's an entry point for people's comfort level from various angles. And I like that. Yeah. 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 Now here in Boulder, of course, Everybody loves to chant Kirtan. Yeah. <laughs> so it kind of depends where you are. But I grew up in, in Connecticut, and my town was founded by Puritans. And the, the joke is that uh, Pur- Puritanism was a religion founded on the deep fear that someone somewhere was enjoying their life. <laughs> so I'd say it was a very anti-Kirtan kind of place. Um, so, you know, different places have different cultures. Yes. 
And I think uh, one of the, if, if something good is coming out of the last few years, I think this access to, um, you know, we can access so many things from our computer, right? We, we learned that for, for good or for bad. And that you, I'm thinking of, you have a song, a chant on Insight Timer, I think that's one of like the most downloaded songs. Which one is that, Mike? That's Om Shanti Om. Om Shanti Om. Yeah, which you know, is, is singing about peace. And so people may want to, um, if you're on insight timer, um, may want to, to look there. Um, I found Mike, the few times that I got to sit, um, next to you and chant, you have this resonance in your voice and this presence of like, I don't know if other people have mentioned that you're almost like this joyful Buddha. Have have people mentioned that to you before? (laughs) Like it's, there's a real, um, just a joy in it that, um, that I just feel so fortunate to have experienced. Um, so you bring you, your presence brings a lot to the Kirtan as well. Thank you. Yeah. Well, it's, it's an amazing practice. I've been doing it for a while. You know, it's been gradually, but inevitably opening my heart, <laughs> uh, which is, which is great. And, um, yeah, I, I you know along the ways I I got into a deep uh, Indian spiritual practice, so I do a lot of mantra practice, mm-hmm. um, but uh, a lot of a lot of other things. You know, I've had a lot of practices along the way. You know, different martial arts and qigong and uh, meditation and just kind of studying everything because I'm really super curious about what it is to be a human. And um, there was a book that was written a couple decades ago. It was by Michael Murphy, who founded Esalen. And it was called The Future of the Body. It was a big like encyclopedic tome where he had gone through all the books in this amazing library he had there and identified all these, um, you know, higher order uh, capacities that humans have um, and can develop. And so I just think there's so much more to us than we often think about ourselves. You know, there's so much more here and um, there's so many practices. I mean, for the first time in history, it's like we have all the practices and all the distinctions, or maybe not all, but a lot, a lot of the wisdom uh, traditions have sh- are, are available. And, um, you know, it's amazing that we can take, take part of that. So I really orient around all this stuff, sort of from the perspective of being human, like, what does it mean to be human and what's possible? And how do these practices support us in that? So, um, yeah, I love that. And admitting that, um, you know, in the natural state of how we're living, you know, you, you kind of hinted that we're living in a very materialistic society. We're coming out of a really unusual um, few years. And maybe like you, like you mentioned, we're not so much coming out of something as going into something else. And this idea of practice and that it does, it takes practice to shift our state and to maybe fully to become a bit more human. Which, yeah. which I think is an ancient idea that is becoming, you know, I think a lot of people think like, well, I don't have to do, I don't have to practice. Mm. <laughs> Can you yeah. speak to that a little? Yeah, I think I've had a practice orientation for much of my life, um, being, being a musician, once I got serious about it, especially. And then that was easy to apply that over to, uh, you know, to spiritual practice and adult development practice. And what Amiel and I are doing is we're really bringing a practice orientation to, um, to the kinds of conversations we're having. 
And so really, you know, a lot of people can really understand this conversational stuff in their head. And they say, okay, let's have you say it. And they can't do it. And so it needs to become embodied. They need to work with their nervous system and their body. So, you know, lots of people have practice orientations from music, from martial arts, from dance, from art, you know, and uh, practices are important because they interrupt our habits. You know, mm -hmm. we, we have habitual ways of doing things. And if we're left to our own devices, we'll just keep doing them that way. And a practice, I think, interrupts. And it's, it's very interesting because I was on a spiritual retreat this last weekend. And um, I finally, a light bulb went off with what the teacher was saying because he was using this um, neuroscience, uh, brain science language, which uh, if I could, when I got it and I translated it over into um, somatic language, it made a lot of sense. And he, so it was saying, he was saying is sort of, we have a, it, somatics would say it this way, we have a, a way that we're organized in our body and there's a certain structure. And then what we want to do is do some sort of practice that disorganizes ourselves in some way. So it could be body work. It could be um, meditation practice. It could be yoga. It could be so many things. Now we're a little disorganized. Ooh, who am I? Now, if we stay in that place of that disorganization, we're going to naturally reorganize into something that's maybe a little bit more true and authentic and grounded in reality and not just our history and our trauma. Um, so in the, if I have all this correct, they're talking about from a, a, a neuroscience perspective that you, um, there's a memory consolidation window. And so after you do this practice, there's about five hours where if you can kind of stay in the disorganization, you're going to reorganize into something different and not just slurp back into who you've, who you've been as a collection of habits and patterns and all that. And so um, I think practices are pretty important in that way, and they really help us uh, develop and also just kind of naturally unfold into who we are, you know, a bigger and bigger person. Mm -hmm. And that, that if we're as long as we're breathing, we can grow and change and adapt and experience life differently. Yeah. And I think, you know, <laughs> some of us are, are, are tough nuts. I think I've been one because I was really brought up and was really in my head. And, you know, the, the whole experience of love that I had in my family growing up wasn't very, uh, I would just say it was very confusing, you know. And I remember about 20 years ago when I did my first coach training and the, the teacher put together two words I'd never considered before, skillful love which raised the question of, oh, if there's skillful love, there must be unskillful love. And all of a sudden I was looking out at the world and I was like, wow, the love that I've experienced and I've been a part of, has been incredibly unskillful. And so what would it take to be, you know, skillful with love? And so, you know, for me, it took a lot of practice and Kirtan was a big one to really get me in my heart and my partner, you know, really appreciates that. Um, and, you know, my capacity to feel her and feel what's going on and, and really be connected in a, in a heart way. And it's, um, it's really great. I remember actually about 20 years ago, I was a, in a, a spiritual group and there was a older gentleman who probably was in his seventies and we got into some conversation and he said, he said, yeah, about two years ago, my heart opened and I just wish that my wife hadn't passed away prior mm -hmm. to that, because I would have loved for her to experience that, you know? Yeah. One thing, Mike, that I remember from my time in in um, intensive kirtan intensives with you was I appreciated sometimes when people approach spirituality, it's very um, 
airy and, um, but you brought sort of a groundedness to practice to even just, you know, that, that these practices are not meant to be that they're most skill, skillful and useful when we ground them in our everyday life and they are grounded in reality. And can you speak to that a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, on, on some level, I could say so much of what, what our life is and how we're sort of oriented by our culture is to the conceptual, you know, and the theoretical and, um, and to bring it down into our heart, into our body and really have it be all the way in there and um, be something that's practical and embodied and other people can feel the impact of like that's that's really what i'm orienting around as much as i can with folks and so i think there was um yeah some i'm thinking about the programs that you ran and there's some really interesting juicy moments and 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 at times um a lot of energy moving through the room because there was a ways in which um I think I was asking folks to be vulnerable and do things that were very much at their edge and trying to hold safety, you know, for them. And so one of the things that I learned at a place called the Strozzi Institute, where I studied somatics for several years, is they, t- they said, they said the person with the strongest, strongest somatic presence in the room sets the tone. So, you know, I know that you're, you've worked in as a doctor, imagine maybe at one point you're in a hospital and if you walk into a meeting and the person who's the leader just freaks out, like, oh my God, horrible things are happening. You know, it's like everybody else is going to go, whoa, you know, like they're all going to get pulled into that. But if that leader walks in and says, okay, like, here's what's happening and we're going to, we're going to sort it out. So number one, this is what we're doing, right? Then everyone goes, ah, drops down. So when I started doing kirtan, there was a way that um, at that point, even though I'd been a musician, it was really new for me, but I would really show up and be in this practice of, I want to have the strongest, most grounded center in the room, no matter what. And I want to pull everybody into that with me. And so (laughs) that's been like a practice I've had since, you know, 2006. And then we get in that room and there's like eight or 10 people and I'm asking people to do stuff that's really edgy. And so as the leader, I want to be really grounded. I want to be centered and I want to really take care of safety and belonging for people because that is just so foundational and so important. Um, you know, to that end, I recently did this really interesting uh, class with an author named Stephen Kessler. He's got some work called the five personality patterns. And so he's looking at how there are five general ways that we orient around safety. And I discovered that I'm, I'm this enduring pattern, which means I like really send energy down into the ground and really get rooted. So I think there's a way that I was able to tap into the gift uh, of that, you know, of that particular type. But I think that that's really important. If you're going to ask people to really get in their bodies and really get in their hearts, you know, all sorts of things come forward, you know, their history, their trauma, their excitement, their, and, and like, it really needs to be held in a container. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of parts and pieces and it's just beautiful to see, like when people show up in that and they're a little bit nervous, but they take the action anyhow, and they trust they're, they're exhibiting courage. And it's just like, so stunning to see that. Yeah, it is. And, you know, you can extrapolate what you just said into like, I love that, that idea of entrainment, right. That you're, when you're in grounded and open-hearted, your presence alone affects the world. It affects your family. It affects your coworkers. And so 
to become skillful in that is really useful. And it's a, it's, it's impacting the world, maybe more than anything that we say, or, you know, it's our presence that then impacts. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And you have a beautiful presence everywhere you go. Oh, thanks. I noticed that. Yeah. Yeah. Just really grounded and really open and really there. And uh, it was always, uh, you always added something really important and powerful uh, in the groups that uh, you participated in is what I saw. And that's really helpful. Um, I've, I've had, you know, groups where um, there's several people out there. It's like, oh yeah, right. They're, they're locked in. This is great. And then I've had groups where it's like, oh, this is going to be, I'm going to really be working hard to hold, hold everything. And I might not be able to go as far as we could go. And so, yeah, but you, you have a beautiful presence. So. Oh, thank you. And I think, you know, I think we, we see people at different stages in their life because there were periods where, um, yeah, I think this is, I think you can work with your own gifts and talents to become more present, right? I certainly always wasn't present. I had this tendency to be kind of light and sometimes leave out the top of my head. So learning how to be in my body has been a, has been a, a practice. And, um, and so that's, I just really love that idea of, of working on these things that you don't really learn in school. I wish they would teach them in school, but they're so vital to how we show up and how we are in relationship with one another. Um, and how we can make impactful change in the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. One body at a time mm-hmm. through our body. You know, there, there's a little, I love what you said. Yeah. There's such impact in our body and our presence and what can happen in another way of looking at it is too, when we're not really grounded in our body um, and something happens, we're much more likely to react. And I think when we react, we're much more likely to make things worse. But if we can get regrounded in our body, we can, um, in recentered, we can respond and probably respond appropriately. Um, this is a lot of the work that they trained us in at the, at the school called the Strozzi Institute, um, that we actually had a practice and I bring this into some of our Kirtan, uh, trainings. And I can't remember if we ever did this one, but we have a standing centering practice and then we have a moving centering practice. And then we had an arm swinging centering practice, but in some of the more advanced trainings, I did, I did something called the grab, which is, you know, only after someone has really developed this center in their body and usually also in language, because we work with things like commitment statements or my deepest love statement is we do this practice where you'd actually grab someone and perturb them in a way that it triggers their nervous system. And then the practice at that point is, you know, not to flip out <laughs> the practice to go, okay, recenter and so that that's a whole practice is recentering 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 and then turn and face the person and and look look at them and say um what do you need or how can i help you or something like that so it's a fundamentally different orientation but we really need to build it in our body and our nervous system um, i used to say that oh go ahead <laughs> no i was just going to say that that resiliency is key like that we're not going to live in most people are not going to live in a, in a blissed out state their whole life. So that ability to respond and recenter is so key. So key. That's basically life is, you know, if we're really living it, I think life is, you know, an ongoing series of, you know, blissful joy and then getting triggered. And then, and then how do we, how do we work with that? You know? And I think the bigger a game we play, the bigger, the bigger the grabs get. I was going to share this funny story, which is that, um, 
So I mentioned Krishna Das is like the Elvis of the Kirtan world. And <laughs> there was a, there was a festival that I first started playing at in 2010 and then they expanded into the Midwest. And so it was about maybe the second or maybe the third year in the Midwest. And they would always, um, release the, the schedule of artists like ridiculously close, like a week before. So, um, it came out and I looked at it and I was like, Oh my God. I was like, they put us Saturday night at like 6 PM, um, opening for Krishna Das. Like he was, wow. we got done and they did the turnover and then he went and I was like, Whoa. Okay. So that was a really big grab for me. But the, the even bigger grab was that this was a moment when I was really working with my Kirtan students now starting to get some that were ready to like lead on their own and make albums and record and writing their own chants, all this good stuff. So I had decided that that year I would have the three singers in my band would all be students. And they're all folks who are kind of orienting towards like making recordings. And there were, I always like to have a balance of the masculine and the feminine. So I had a female singer and this gal was like so talented and equally as shy. She was British and, and she had this whole backstory of like being painfully shy, but she sings and she loved R&B and Amy Winehouse and all these different artists. And she wrote these songs and I was like, oh my God, Claire, like, like this is so beautiful. And I don't even know what to call that chord you wrote there. It's like C7 flat nine sharp thir uh, flat 13. Like, it's like, like, wow, like just real natural. And she had this connection with her grandma around singing in church. And, uh, you know, grandma had passed away because she was probably uh, maybe her 30. She was a mom at that time. And so I was working with her for these the, the, these songs that ended up on being on her Kirtan album called called Dreams Come True. And so we really worked on this one song and this this poor gal, because this was like really pushing her edge. Like you can just imagine. This right. is like, she's like, wait a minute, I'm going to sing in your band at this festival and I'm going to sing one of my own songs. And. And what made it worse is that, you know, because all the musicians were converging on the festival from everywhere, she's like, are we going to get to rehearse? I'm like, no, I'm like the drummer showing up like for the set before us to play. And then, so it was like the amount of trust. I'm starting to like get a little bit left here. You'll be <laughs> nervous just about this. Right. <laughs> and so she got up there and I coached her like, okay just say something about the song and your grandma and, and, you know, and she did, and she was like basically trembling, you know, and, um, we got, we got going and it's like, okay, people it's working. It's good. It's like, I just see her relax because like the mantras were working on her and she had, it was like, literally her nervous system was like really at its edge and she stepped through and it was so courageous and so beautiful. And, you know, she, that kind of propelled her. And she went on to make the recording, release this beautiful album. And it was also just such a huge thing for her body and her nervous system and her wiring to be able to um, have that anxiety, but still step into action. And I think it was like love that really pulled her forward. And that connection with the grandma really rooted her. So, yeah, oh, geez. <laughs> it's like, oh, beautiful. <laughs> So, so that was a big grab for her and she kept centering and recentering and recentering. And I wasn't going to confess this to her, but it was kind of a big grab for me too. Um, yeah. Like opening for Krishnas, but also like trying to hold the space for her so she could be successful. But it was a, it was a triumph. You know, it was really Oh, beautiful. Mike, I think that speaks a lot too to your generosity as a teacher, you know, that you would um, offer that moment for a student is, is pretty cool. I'm wondering, you know, people listening who, 
now their interest is peaked and now they may want to know how to work with you. Can you chat a little bit about that? Yeah. So I've got a website. It's kirtanleader.com and you spell kirtan, K-I-R-T-A-N. I'll link that in the show notes as well. Well, thank you. Yeah. uh, That's probably the best way folks can get in touch with me there. We have a free class. Um, there's, uh, you know, folks can reach out to me and I can point them to, uh, to music. You said Om Shanti Om on Inside Timer. I've got all the, uh, tracks from my albums up there. And, uh, we have like a full, uh, I've spent the last two years basically building out a full, full complement of, um, online classes that people can take and we break them out into different levels. So we have level one, level two, level 2.5. We have a level 3.5 chant writing. And then we're also doing our first um, in-person intensive in almost three years, which I'm very excited about. It just works because I've moved recently to a place where we have this big outdoor patio and this living room with all these doors we can open. So it feels like it'd be it'd be safe. And uh, we're having a it's a level two intensive June 23rd through 26th. It's on the website. We're having a theme which is like I was saying earlier uh, when we were chatting this so in line with our conversation because the theme is deepening your experience of love and we've been over the last couple months in a lot of conversations in the class about what is love and what is worldly love and what is spiritual love and what are all the dimensions of it and it's been it's been really juicy so we're going to use this kirtan practice as a way to generate experiences that inform that inquiry and understanding Oh, I just highly recommend people to check out all your offerings and, um, and that you really do make it accessible. So um, if, you know, for those who are wondering if they have what it takes, you do. And Mike can walk you through, um, Mike, he can walk you through the process. So I, I invite you to kind of push your own edge a little bit if it's something that you wanted to do for a while, but maybe didn't have access to it where you live. There was nobody teaching Kirtan. Mike is, I, I think, Again, one of the one of the benefits of coming out of COVID might be that you know more people have access to your teaching than they you know if you, they don't live near Boulder than they otherwise would. Absolutely, we had one class going into COVID, and now we've got a, a dozen. So uh, we also have a free class, and I came up with a whole system of music that some folks have said is a little bit like guitar tabs. But basically, my my idea was I wanted to teach people how to chant without them having to learn to read or understand Western music or Indian classical music. So I, I think it's pretty pretty intuitive for folks once they see what we're doing. Awesome. Well, Mike, thank you so much for your time and and for sharing from your heart today. I appreciate it. All right. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me.